The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Hmm, what a lot of things, environmental things to think about there in that news bulletin. Blow to the fight against Ebola and what a tragic thing. Desperate poachers, a thousand rhinos dead, desperate poachers. That in itself tells a story. Well, it's the Enviro Show here on SAFM. Welcome, lovely to have you with us. I'm Nancy Richards, Kim Winter and Rob Parkin on the other side of the glass. And we do have you, which is always very exciting. So let me tell you what we've got uh, on the show t- tonight. First up, load shedding. Are you surprised? Kevin James is the owner of GCX, the global carbon, global carbon exchange, and he's going to give us his thoughts on that. Maybe there's a, a silver lining to this cloud. Who knows? After that, fresh back from COP20 in darkest Peru, Happy Kumbule will be giving us his feedback. He's been there. He'll tell us what his thoughts are on that. And in our forage feature, we're going to talk to Ina Nell of Levubu all about drying guavas. And then, on account of the, the time of year, reclaimed wooden Christmas trees. That's with Roger Tebelock. Oh, yes. And uh, to close, a man who seems to me to have a light bulb brain. He's Yusuf Mali, and he gets creative, inventive, and very, very green. And if you'd like to, talking of load shedding, which we're going to be doing just now with Kevin James, if you would like to, um, if you'd like to let us know how you've been coping with it. Maybe you've got some sort of strategies and techniques that have really helped you through it. And has it not truly been challenging? Let us know on our Facebook page. It's uh, the Enviro Show on SAFM, the Enviro Show on SAFM. We'd really like your bright ideas. So that's what we've got lined up for you. And don't forget that the show is podcast. So if you want to find it at a later stage, www.safm.co.za. Go to podcast and scroll on down till you find it. So our eco info today turns into the issue of load shedding. As we read that ESCOM's forecast of planned load shedding in 2015 doesn't bode well for the growth in small and medium enterprise sector, nor indeed does it bode well for any of us, I would say. Um, in fact, the introduction, uh, the, in fact, the power crisis has been referred to as one of the most critical structural impediments to economic growth in the country, which in itself is, is a little scary. And ESCOM chief executive officer says that load shedding is here to stay, at least for the next few months, as a utility tries to stabilise an extremely contra- constrained system. There's a sort of slightly bit of good news that there's low risk over Christmas and medium risk for most of January. But as we've heard again and again, regular rolling blackouts are going to be a feature of February and March. So not great news. Well, we've got Kevin on the line to, for his thoughts. Hi, Kevin. Yeah, good evening, Nancy. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Are you in the dark or are you, have you got light? Oh, you know what? When Kim called today, I um, immediately said I'll, I'll, I'll be there with my cell phone and a candle. Hey? So I've already gotten, I've already programmed. So it's good expectation management that we don't have load shedding. You know, you'll have to get one of those little console glass jars and sort of put it out (laughs) in the sun. But, you know, we laugh, but they're they're really good value. But, Kevin, you uh, you heard me saying there, low risk (coughs) over Christmas, medium risk January, February, March. It seems like we're going to be hit once again. It seems like it's going to be something on the agenda for the foreseeable future. What's your feeling on that? Well, I think that's right. I mean, uh, ESCOM has made it pretty clear that it's something that we need to get used to. Uh, obviously, it's against the backdrop of there being absolutely no crisis whatsoever from their side. But, um, yeah, we've we, we got to have to adjust our lives. We're going to have to adjust the way we, we, we transport ourselves, the way we do business, the way we conduct our livelihoods. And uh, every single one of us is going to be affected in either a professional or a uh, you know, your, your independently. So, you know, not looking good, Nancy, I have to say. And, um, you know, going through the actual um, 
presentation that was given by ESCOM, you know, when they're talking about what can be done and all the outlook, you know, it's pure maintenance stuff. They put it down to low-quality maintenance that's been done, you know, an aging fleet of power stations. Uh, but stuff really that just should have been taken care of, you know, and um, it hasn't. So I think everyone's lost confidence in ESCOM. Uh, I think ESCOM is under huge pressure now to do something completely differently, and I really do hope that they do something completely differently, uh, starting with uh, really going seriously into outsourcing all this generation um, into the hands of independent power producers because uh, it's quite clear that they can neither generate nor um, or develop uh, more generation nor maintain their current fleet. Yeah. You know, the question we're really asking here, because so much has been said about why it's happening or why it shouldn't be happening, and, and the point is, it is happening. And I can't help feeling, and you'll laugh, but I can't help feeling maybe that there's a bit of a silver lining to this cloud. Maybe it'll encourage us to be, A, more aware of the electricity and, and the power that we are consuming all the time, to be more prepared, to find creative ways of, of doing more with less. But I think, Nancy, you know, then it is definitely the way ESCOM has, uh, needs to handle the situation. They need to understand that actually we, you know, that we, we're not going to be deceived. This is, this is here to stay. So, so give us certainty about how, you know, it's not good, but give us at least certainty into what's not good. Having level one, two, and three load shedding and not knowing at any stage what's going to be sprung upon us. Rather just say, you know what, constantly we've got level three load shedding and this is what it means to all of your lives and, and, and plan around that. We cannot plan anything from a business perspective or from a personal uh, entertainment perspective because you just don't know what's going to happen from day to day. Yeah. So I, I think they need to institutionalize it almost, as sad as that sounds, you know, because, you know, as a, as a country, I don't personally don't mind it that much because I, I'm having the most delightful social uh, events with people having and, and sitting and just really having quality time with uh, people close to us during these times. But we need to know when those are so we can plan ahead. And I think that's the least that ESCOM can do under the circumstances because having power just cut off in terms of industry and manufacturing, it has huge ramifications for, for, for losses of material, losses of energy. Um, you know, they, we, 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 we know that the load shedding has cost us hundreds of billions of rands in the last couple of years. Uh, so far, the steel and, and, and um, engineering sector have said a six billion rand this particular incident so far. So it's having really devastating impacts. But the worst part of it, like I say, Nancy, is that there's no certainty. Business yeah, needs they're not certainty. knowing. I mean, if we if we knew for sure that it was going to happen at particular times, then one could get organised. As Kim was saying earlier, you could, you'd know to sort of charge up your cell phone. You'd know to charge up your um, your laptop, so suddenly you weren't sort of completely uh, disempowered. But, you know, just on in, in what you were saying about having nice, quiet times with family and friends, and etc., cetera, et cetera, um, it, it does make you think of things very differently. I had a shopping experience recently. I went to one shop that we shall be nameless, but there was very little power, and it was very quiet and low-key, and there were no humming anything, there was no background music, and it was a very peaceful experience, and everybody was walking around quietly. It was a bit like a wartime situation, which there was a lot to be said for it, that it was very quiet. I then went to another shop where they obviously had generators, and there was light and ice cold blasting everywhere, and I kept thinking somewhere in between these two is the way to go. You know, maybe the one shop that had very little maybe needed to have done something, and maybe the shop that had too much maybe should be cutting down. Do you know what I'm saying? I think that goes for everything, you know. I think we all need to become a hell of a lot more aware. Um, it's, you know, I think whoever can afford needs to investigate 
finding alternative ways to, to power themselves and alternative ways to reduce energy. So, so I just think it's something that, you know, and it's forcing us to do that, Nancy. The, on, on, on the flip side of this whole crisis is that it's forcing people to become, you know, to behave in a better way, to change their behavior. Um, it's forcing people to invest in uh, technologies and controls that reduce and generate. So at the end of the day, it's reducing our carbon emissions as a country because we can't operate at full, uh, you know, full capacity. So at the end of the day, there are some, some pluses, but I think we need to just know that for the next couple of years, this is going to be something that, you know, that's something that's going to become part of our lives. Um, yeah. and, 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 and there's nothing really we can do about it. All that, I think, against the backdrop of the government doing something completely different, because I think it's going to come a time soon where, yes, we don't mind making sacrifices, you know, in South Africa. We are very, we're, we're a country that is, uh, that, that does show unity under crisis. But at the same time, we need to see our leadership coming to the party and doing things uh, that, that, are, that, that are quite difficult for them to do. Yes, I appreciate your idea about, you know, it is going to reduce our carbon emissions, but kind of with a gun to our head, you know, which is not really the way one would want to go. But is there nothing we can do? Are there perhaps any websites with filled with good ideas on what we can do, ways in which we can handle this? I mean, some creative soul, in fact, if you're listening and you're such a creative soul, let us know, pop us a message on our Facebook page, um, The Enviro Show on SAFM, and tell us, you yourself, GCX, have you got any uh, any thoughts, any any creative um, ideas coming up on your side? Well, the thing that we're very involved in is alternative energy generation, obviously, you know, and I mean that can be helpful with renewable energy. You know, it depends on the on the wind and and, and solar resources. But we heavily invested in biomass energy, and for me, I've spoken about this before. You know, when. Uh, you know, this is really a technology and a solution that I believe is really most appropriate African solution. It's decentralized. It's baseload power that it generates because it uses biomass from above the ground in order to create electricity through things like biogas digestion and gasification. It's very versatile. So I, and, 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 it's, and it's decentralized. So companies can actually feed off it directly locally. Um, in their own um, mini grid, so, so so I think there's a, you know we there are a lot of companies saying hold on we need more certainty in terms of our energy supply. In fact, we need more cost certainty as well because there's no uh, confidence at all in, in 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 what the trajectory looks like in terms of our energy costs for the next five to ten years. And business want that, so they're looking for any way to be able to secure those two things. You know, energy supply certainty and energy cost certainty. Mm. Seems like there's a big yawning gap for people to fill and get creative on this whole thing. Kevin, thank you. Thanks very much. I'm going to give out your website anyway if anybody would like to know a little bit more about the biomass and all the all the work that you're doing. So thanks for sharing and very best of luck and may you Only stay light from invitation. within. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Take care. Thanks. Take care. Hey, Nancy. Cheers. Kevin James, he's the owner of GCX Global Carbon Exchange. Check their site, if you will, gcxafrica.com, gcxafrica.com. The Enviro Show. Well, there we go, load shedding. It certainly feels at the moment, certainly, like an exclusively South African thing. But clearly there are countries and communities the world over where electricity is even more at a premium, possibly. So before we complain, let's just all consider our options and our own actions. Well, considering the world's environmental options and actions is what COP do, the Conference of the Parties, that's what they're all about. And it's presently, COP20 is presently underway in Peru, from which Happy Kumbule, Research Coordinator of Project 90 by 2030, has just returned to tell us how it is, how it's going, what's being said. Hi, Happy. 
It's high energy. How are you? Excellent. Nice, nice to have you with us once again. Happy. Yeah, what were you? What were you doing there? How long were you there? What? Uh, what was your? What were your antennae picking up? Um, yeah. So, we were, as you said, we were at COP. Um, some of my colleagues are still there at COP, but uh, I went there to basically follow up on the negotiations on the new climate agreement that will be signed or agreed to next year in Paris. So I was there to basically look and find out about the upfront information that countries need to give uh, in the international sphere about how they're going to compile their uh, uh, actions to deal with climate change, as well as what certain actions will they be taking in terms of uh, mitigation and adaptation responses to climate change. So what did you hear? There's an awful lot of, if you'll forgive me, sort of hot air that gets spoken where there's so many people talking, there's so much to be said. What did you pick up? What did you, you sort of um, bring back with you that made you feel remotely optimistic? <laughs> it's actually quite true that there's a lot of hot air that is spoken uh, at these uh, international negotiations. But I think what uh, what has been out is that there is a, a bigger, or rather there's more political will to deal with climate change and specifically the issues that contribute to climate change. Yes, uh, I mean, you're speaking to um, someone who's specifically on the energy mix of South Africa uh, with biogas in mind. But the, the conversation of transitioning from fossil fuels to renewable energy is a big decision at these COPs, being that uh, energy, the energy mix of the countries around the world are primarily the reason why we have such a thing as climate change. One of the things that you, I think you're involved in is the You Lead Collective. It's a youth-led yeah. initiative by Project 90 by 2030. Tell us a little more. Um, yeah, so the You Lead Collective is a program which has been created by Project 90, which is youth-led. So all the youth members of the collective are basically running the program. They come up with the objectives of the program. The program was designed so that we can get more young African leaders, uh, youth leaders, to be engaged in the COP negotiations, being that there's a lot of capacity and there's a lot of training which is being given to developing country youth in terms of understanding the process of uh, international negotiations. Looking at the fact that in a few years, even next year probably, most of the young people who are involved in the space will start to become either negotiators or part of the delegation or will come will become much more interested in the international negotiations. So the, the idea is that to, to scale young people up early so that by the time we get into the international negotiations on and off, we are on par with the developed youth of uh, the global north. So we have to skill young people up early. What sort of skills do they need? You know, because to understand environmental matters, you really need to not necessarily be a scientist, but you need to be on top of what the issues really are. And then obviously you need the other skills like communication skills, yes. and, you know, dissemination skills, all those sort of things. But how are y these young people being skilled up? Well, the, the biggest thing about the international negotiations, uh, as, as you also stated about communication, is also learning the language which has been used. Um, it's a very different language from normal English, so uh, it comes with jargons and different uh, phrases which would not necessarily mean the same thing when you're speaking to anyone else who's not in the process. So understanding the jargon, understanding the language, the process itself is very different from other processes such as the Law of Seas um, or in the uh, Montreal Protocol. So understanding how climate change is linked to all the other issues such as economic development and also looking at what are the 
key political um, dimensions that happen within the negotiations that enable either change or enable the blocking of certain uh, initiatives. I'm not sure if this is the first COP that you've been to. No, 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 it's not my first COP. Yeah, no, <laughs> unfortunately. I, I, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I was just, well, I suppose I'm thinking that it seems that there is always an emphasis on young people because it is young people, after all, who are wow. going to be, you know, be taking over the earth in the future and not, you know, it's just down the road as things yeah. are, are changing very, very quickly. So there's a lot of emphasis on giving a spotlight or giving a platform to young people, but are they able to actually really affect a difference? Does it sometimes feel like it's a sort of a token platform? Yeah, well, that's precisely one of the battles that we have as young people, not to be seen as tokens. Uh, But uh, what happens at COP is that there's a specific youth uh, constituency that the COP process identifies and will let young people to engage in so that their views are then tabled and then considered within the broader scheme um, of the negotiations. Because you have other constituencies such as business, you have constituencies of NGOs and of course governments. So youth have their own constituency which uh, they discuss and talk about the negotiations. But the, the, the biggest thing about youth involvement in COP is that we're not seeing an increase in global South youth. So youth from Latin America or uh, Africa, you're not seeing uh, a real push on that. So this is also our our way of dealing and uh, meeting the gap that is there. Did you meet other people, other young people from other countries? Yes, yes. Um, uh, there, there are some people who have been at COP um, for majority of their early um, in their early twenties and their late uh, teens. So you get to meet very different people of different capacity as well. Um, the quite uh, uh, inspirational uh, African youth that we've met in COP as well, who are, very, who are also aiming to see how can youth in Africa link up and come up with something that is more ambitious for 2015 in Paris. Yeah, because it's very... Um, Africa, you know, we are very much... Um very much a target of all the global, you know, issues and changes that are going on. Africa is is certainly set to suffer extraordinarily heavily. Um, Just in terms of Peru, before we get to Paris, did you have a chance to look at Peru at all? You know, the Peruvians themselves, has having COP20 there made an impact on them, would you say? Uh, Yeah, uh, fortunately, before I actually went to COP, I went to the Conference of the Youth, so like a three-day event as well, which is basically organized by the youth and um, held for the youth. And it, it seems that uh, the, the youth in Peru are quite engaged, and not obviously not everybody is engaged, but the youth that we were able to talk to were engaged. There was a lot of media hype around COP this year in, in Peru, but obviously there's also the issue that governments say one thing in Peru or in, in, in the COP negotiations and do something totally different. So there's also dealing with the contrasting issues and the, and, and the dynamics politically within the nation of Peru while you're there. Um, I'll give you a, a small example is that there was, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a call by government to to build another power station and to also cut a few of the forest areas around uh, certain communities in Peru. The youth was much more politically engaged and they had mobilized around COP to communicate the message that they're not agreeing with this uh, development by government. So there's a good um, side to the, to the negotiations other than the sense that um, they give 
um, youth and general civil society a platform to voice our concerns on a global scale as opposed to just having the, the national um, platforms to deal with. Yeah. Did you have a chance to travel around Peru? I, you know, I keep to, I keep referring it to darkest Peru simply because that's what Paddington Bear says, and I mean the movie is is out. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's becoming a little bit tired as a joke. But did you have a chance to see any light in Peru? Um, I only saw the um, the old city ruins. Uh, I did not get a chance to go into Machu Picchu um, like the other people. But uh, I know that a lot of my friends are going there. So I'll be living vicariously through them when they come back and show me the pictures of the Inca temples and all. But I mean, the the, the, the old city which I saw is also got ruins of the old uh, Inca civilization, and it was quite uh, amazing to see such things. Yeah. So you only read about them, and yeah, it was yeah, uh, it was quite insightful. Yeah, it certainly puts the past into some sort of perspective. And I suppose what we, you know, our focus is really on the future here. But I mean, one's got to look at the past, where we've come from. Happy, yeah. just lastly, are you feeling, did you, are you coming back feeling optimistic? Yes and no. Mm. I'm optimistic that something will be agreed. Um, and that bit no, because there are certain issues that still are occurring in the negotiations like the power dynamics that are played between countries developed versus developing countries and the idea of well who are the initial stakeholders um, just a quick example is that ngos this year are calling for the fossil fuel industry not to be present at the COP negotiations that is something that generally was seen as okay for quite some time to build on this uh, collaborative and cooperative approach to dealing with climate change but they're seeing this idea that uh, the industry is blocking uh, some of the progress. So I'm not particularly sure what's going to happen. I'm waiting for the outcomes myself because at this point in time, COP is uh, in the high ministerial uh, consultations. So it's only the ministers which are talking and the lead negotiators and civil society is not not given access to the rooms. Mm. So so we'll only find out when they agree uh, on the 12th or the 13th, depending on how far they go. Sure. Well, that's something to watch out for. Happy, lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks once again for joining us, and I'm sure we'll speak again. You take care. It's a pleasure. Thanks Thank a you lot. very much. Cheers. Well, if you'd like to find that was Happy Kumbulein. He's research coordinator of Project 90 by 2030. If you'd like to find out more about what they do and the You Lead Collective, check their site, which is 90, the numbers, times uh, x2030, also numbers.org.za, 90by2030.org.za. I think it's up on our Facebook page. Yep. And if you want to find out more about COP, check their site, which is cop20lima.org, cop20lima.org. Listening. The Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, that's exactly what you're listening to. It's the Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, next up on the show, it's time for our forage feature, our regular feature. And if there's anything you'd like to us to go foraging for you and find out a little bit more, do let us know. Pop us a, a message, if you like, uh, enviro at safm.co.za. But today we're focusing on guavas and the good old guava roll. Well, earlier I spoke to a guava roll specialist, you could call her. She's uh, Ina Nell. She's the MD of Lavubu Dried Fruit Farm there in Limpopo. And I asked her first what Lavubu meant. Um, Lavubu is a, is a small farming area um, at the foot of the Sotlandsberg, and it means the place of a hippo. Um, it's a vendor name because our area, our area is um, in between um, the vendor and the Shangan areas. Um, but predominantly, predominantly vendor. 
so and it's a vendor name it, it means the place of the hippo and so that's the area's name and that's where we got the name for the company from okay so it's the place of the hippo it's also the place of the guava i believe you grow guavas but what what other fruits have you got on the farm we um there's a lot of macadamias being grown here and avocados as well it's a subtropical area okay but it's only the, the only the guava that you're actually drying Yes, it is. Um, the the guava is a is a old fashioned snack, as you know. For for the, you you probably remember your grandmother always making guava rolls, and so that's prob- that's how it actually started as well. So it started as a home industry. My mom, we live on the farm, and my mom started it. Um, there was guavas left over, and she started doing this, and then it grew from there. It grew just by popularity. And now it's a now it's a proper company supplying guava rolls and other forms of dried guava, as well as banana. There's a lot of bananas also being grown here. Um, we also supply dried bananas and these pineapples. So that's that's what we all supply. Okay, so you're not necessarily doing the farming and the growing. You are receiving the the product and processing it. Yes, we are. Although um, we are on the farm. Um, it's it's very much of a farming uh, of, of a family business. My husband is doing the farming now. My my parents are retired. Uh, my husband's doing the farming, and um, my sister and I are do the, doing the processing factory. Then the um, but we do buy the fruits in from the from other farmers as well as from my husband. Okay, so yeah. so basically, I'm I'm not sure if one can dry avos. I suppose um, one okay. can before yeah. you press it for oil. And that's oh. where you get avocado oil from. Right, okay. But, but you can't do it as a snack. Mm. That doesn't um, relate to the snack market. Okay, well, we'll, we'll leave avocados for another day because what we're really yes. interested in is the dried fruit, it being that yes, time absolutely. of year when dried And you're quite rather sweet that you refer to guava, guava rolls as old, an old-fashioned snack. <laughs> but I think, I mean, I know people who absolutely love them. Who are oh, very contemporary. Well, I can tell you from experience that most people love them because they, they, we supply it to the whole country and we can hardly keep up with the demand. So, and the kids love it. Yeah. And it's a much healthier snack than, say, chocolates or, or sweets that is really just full of gelatine and sugar. Yeah. Well, I imagine there's a fair bit of sugar in a guava roll as well. But let, let's go back to the beginning. So I'm thinking that focusing on the guavas, there must be... A growing season, a picking season, a drying season. What season are you in right now? Well, we are right at the end of, of the, the producing season for the fresh guavas. Um, guavas um, do quite well with manipulating them to, um, grow, to, to yield out of season. Oh. So, yes, we have fresh guavas for about 10 months of the year. Um, so we work with the fresh guavas, uh, we process it immediately and then dry it and um, supply it like that. Um, the, the quiet months is then December and January for the supply of the fresh guavas. How do you talk about yield out of season? How do you persuade a guava tree that to keep on producing out of season? Mm. What, what, what do you, you prune do? it. Yeah, certain, trees, you, certain trees can be, be manipulated by pruning. So you basically tell it that you, you prune it back um, and to tell it that it needs to start flowering now or, or first grow and then flower and then bear the fruit. Are guavas, am I right in thinking that guavas live to a ripe old age? Yes, they do. They do. A bit and like you an olive. It annually. Going, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, 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 a guava tree, it keeps on bearing and yes. on and on and on. It's not yes, something you have absolutely. to keep replacing. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I know in other countries where it's all subsistence farming, like Thailand and that type of thing, they actually prune, as they pick, they prune certain branches, and therefore then the tree just keeps on bearing and bearing all year round. Well, that's quite handy, isn't it? Which means that guavas... Yes. But we don't necessarily get fresh guavas um, in in the shops. No, that, that is because it's um, the natural time for the guava, for, for bearing, is from April to about end of June. That's the natural cycle for it. Let's move away from the, the you know, the fresh guava onto the, the processing and the drying. Um, so picking, I imagine, then goes on pretty much for 10 months of the year yeah, as well. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You, at what point do you pick them? Do they have to be sort of nice and fresh and juicy or do they have to be a little bit under ripe? What's the picking time? Well, the picking time, you, you see that the, the fruits becomes shiny. Then it's ready for it to be picked even though it might not be yellow, because you don't want to be picking it when it's yellow already. That, that becomes being too, too ripe um, if you still need to transport it and maybe have it in a shop for a day or so. So as soon as the, the skin has a shine to it, then the fruit is physiologically ready to be picked. So there you've got your big baskets full of, of shiny but not yellow guavas. <laughs> what's, the next, what's the next step? Well, for us at the factory, the next well for the farmers really, um, you would take all those fruits now to the packhouse, um, sort out the very very nicest ones, the top grades. That would go to the fresh produce market, and that would be sold as fresh guava yeah. and your fruit and veggies or pick and pays or wherever. And then um, your second grades would be going to the canning factories. So the canning factories will be getting the ones that have got a little bit of a damage or something like that and then um, that would be then from there you would get all the the ones that are misformed and maybe a bit too small or that type of thing that would go to the processing factories maybe for the juice or for the drying as such we prefer because we don't use preservatives um, or colorants in our um, guava rolls we prefer to have the second grade and not the juice guavas because we can't manipulate the guavas to um, to have a different color. So we have to start off with a very good quality fruit to be able to have a good quality guava roll. Well, that's comforting. I mean, guava rolls are always sort of nice and pink, aren't they? So once you've got the, the choice that you want of the guavas themselves, do you peel them? Do you sun dry them? You say you use no preservatives. So how do you do it? Um, yes, we, we wash the fruit, then we put it through a process um, of taking the skins and the pips out um, and ending up with a, with a pulp. Uh, we add a bit of sugar into that because the natural content um, of the natural sugar content of a guava is very low. So if you don't add any sugar, you get a very, very hard and not a palatable end product. Yes. It almost tastes like cardboard, really. Um, so we do add a bit of sugar to it. Um, we spread it out quite thin. That's why we can not use any preservatives in it. Um, so it has to dry quite quickly in order to, to not go off before the drying is finished. So do you spread it thin uh, in, in an enclosed space or is it out in the sun? Um, we have different, different ways of doing it. We have facilities where we, we spread it out and it's dried in the sun. Um, certain clients prefer for it to go into the dryers and never go outside and those who stick to that side. Okay, so some people are quite fussy. I imagine the flies would have a field day if, if it's outside, but presumably you have something to cover them. Well, uh, I can honestly tell you, if you have bananas or mangoes outside, you can, the insects have a field day. 
um, the pH value has something to do with the attraction to insects. And the guavas are not, not bothered at all by insects. So that's not a problem at all. But that's not the case on the trees. I, I know it is not the case on the they, trees. They're nasty the trees, little the, things the that creep into have yeah. a field day. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, but they don't seem to be interested in the in the pulp. Yeah, you know, just quickly, you say the sugar content in a guava is very low, but the vitamin C content, I believe, is is sky high. It is quite high. Mm. It is sky high, and um, and the digestive um, advantage of the guava is really significant. If I if I can just take it with my um, um, clients, I have a whole lot of um, old people, um, people having troubles with, the, with their stomachs and things that are, um, that are interested and they buy it on a regular basis simply for that. So it keeps them regular, as it were. Absolutely. <laughs> so there, there, we've got it thinly spread inside or outside. What do you do from there? Do you cut it into slices? I'm imagining a sort of like a pastry situation. Yes. Cut it into yeah. slices, we, roll we, it up. We and pick it up again. from the from the um, trays that it's spread on. We pick it up. It almost comes off like a sheet. Um, and we pick it off from there, and then we cut it to the size required, and then we roll it. And do you add a little bit more sugar then? No. No, the sugar oh, is okay. added when the, when the process starts, and that's all then. And a jolly healthy snack it is too. Is it very seasonal in terms of people buying them, or or is it a year-round product? I mean, is it's it, a year-round product. It's very much it a lunchbox thing. I must say, um, we do find a tendency of people buying it a bit more in winter. I think it has to do with the with the flus and the things, and and um, people wanting a little bit more vitamin C for, for the for the health reasons. Well, it's certainly not uh, winter time at the moment. Nonetheless, it is Christmas time, and it's a, it's all coming up to Christmas time, and it'd be a jolly good time to uh, get yourself full of vitamin C. Absolutely, Ida. Uh, thank you. I was going to say, any more information? Would they find it on your website? They can find it on the website. And the guavas is a very healthy snack, and it's a lovely snack. And then the other fruits are never to be left out either, because you find some people love guava. But others prefer the other ones. So the banana, the pineapple, the mango, everything is equally healthy. And you do those as well, do you? We do that, yes. Well, let me give out your website and we can, uh, we can advise people to go and have a look. In the meantime, stay well, stay healthy and stay well guavered. Lovely. Thanks very <laughs> Thank much. Thank you very Ida. much. Lovely. Thanks a lot. You take care. Idanel, Managing Director there of Levubu Dried Fruit. And if you would like to find out a little bit more, do check their site. It's levubudriedfruit.com, levubudriedfruit.com. The Enviro Show. It's indeed the Enviro Show, and it's at that time of year when some people will be thinking Christmassy thoughts like turkeys and mince pies and hams and Christmas trees. Well, there are options. You can either buy your charity one from the roadside or you can go completely woody and invest in one from an organisation called By the Sea. That's B-U-Y, the Sea. From Roger Tebelock, Tebel, Tebelcock, who is an artist. He's also owner of By the Sea. And we have him on the line, I think, from Plettenberg Bay. Hi, Roger. Hello, how's it going? Excellent, excellent. How's Plettenberg Bay? Is it, is it lovely? Oh, is it's it... absolutely stunning day. I spent the day at the beach collecting driftwood today. Okay, you don't Beautiful. get uh, you don't get sort of uh, crowded out by um, school kids on the Plet Rage or anything, do you? No, no, no. Where we collect the wood is um, a little way out of Tettenberg Bay, on a private estate. Um, so we're away from the mad rush of Plet. Mm. 
So tell us about this collecting driftwood. What what do you do? Do you, do you spend your days collecting driftwood? Is there much? Where's it coming from? Um, well, it all started five years ago. We had the big storms in Plattenberg Bay, the big floods, and we woke up the next day and all the beaches were covered in driftwood. Um, beautiful, you know, yellow wood, iron wood, stink wood, all the um, indigenous trees and the council started clearing the beaches and I've done a um, seven-year apprenticeship in England for carpentry and joinery. So I really appreciate the beauty of wood. And I started collecting it and I made my wife a Valentine's heart out of it and people saw it and it just progressed from there. Hmm. <laughs> well, you've certainly got some lovely things on your website. We had a quick mm. look and it's very sort of beautiful, um, authentic decor items, I, I suppose. But just thinking about these big storms that you had and there was ironwood and yellow wood. Now, are these whole trees that have been washed washed but, ashore? Yeah, you, you get huge um, pieces of driftwood. Um, and it all got washed out to sea and then buried and then it gets washed in again on storms. And you get it right down to the tiny little bit, right up to a huge tree trunk. There's a great variety there. I have to ask you this, Roger, is it public property? I mean, you know, I'm not sure if the sort of the beach police are listening to this, but is it allowed for you to go uh, beach combing and just pick up these things? I'm not, not sure who else would be using it, but... Yes, any, any... Yes, yeah, no, no, I've got permission. Um, okay. I wrote to the government and I've got permission to do it. Um, you, you've got to get licenses to collect shells on the beach, um, but not driftwood. Okay. Mm. The, once a tree or a you know, piece of wood has been at sea, one would imagine it would get sort of waterlogged, it then gets washed up on the beach and, and then dries out. Does it, uh, does, does it rot at all or does it get you know get so much salt in it that it almost sort of preserves it yes no it's totally preserved and we only picked the driftwood on the high tide mark um so it's just been freshly washed up from the sea and oh it's it's got a beautiful smell to it as well when you make something and put it into your home when you walk past it you can smell the sea from the driftwood so it's a beautiful material to use well, most people around about this time, well, when they think in terms of Christmas trees, you think about the smell of, of pine in your home, <laughs> but you're talking about the sort of salty smell of a driftwood tree. Tell us yeah. about the Christmas trees that you're making out of this reclaimed wood. Yeah, yeah, we um, we do it so you can dismantle it at the end of um, Christmas and put it away so you can have it year after year. We make them in various sizes, um, We've got a steel rod at the middle and a base, and then you spread the wood out um, like the shape of a Christmas tree. And all the wood's got its own character, so it, it looks very nice. It's still, um, so the idea is to sort of make it knock down, but um, I, I don't really have a picture of this in my head. Could could you put it back together in any particular way, or are or each of the pieces numbered so you know where to put yeah, it? Yeah, no, no, we we numbered the pieces so it's like you get the box and you put it together, you know, um, from the biggest up to the smallest at the top. Very simple to do. Yeah. Walking along a beach, you find all sorts of things. I mean, what you're talking yeah. about there is finding great big tree trunks or even large boughs of wood. But I imagine that you also find other bits of wood that may be something. Have you had any finds, bits of reclaimed driftwood find where it's been identifi identifiably something else? 
Yeah, no, I, um, I, you find all kinds of things like seal skulls and shells and bits of boats and all kinds of things washed up. It's 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 like a treasure hunt every time I mm. go down there. I absolutely love it. Actually, Kim's just showed me a picture of one of your trees, so now I have a better idea of what they actually <laughs> look like. What? So each and every one would be uh, exclusive. The only thing I couldn't That's really right. tell is the size. What are we talking about size-wise? Um, the biggest ones we're doing are two metres high and the smallest uh, 500, uh, 50 centimetres. So, yeah, and then we've got a one metre and a 1.5. The do do you, who else do you find on the beach when you're I mean how long I'm just thinking if you're producing these you've got to get really quite a lot of wood do you, yeah. are there are there areas that where the tide brings in a lot more than others and are, are there days when you go away empty-handed no no where the, where we go there's um, huge piles of driftwood and what, you'll go one week and there's a huge pile and the next week it's gone and you look and it's like a hundred meters down the beach, so it gets sucked out to the sea by the wave action and the rip current, and then deposited a bit, a bit further down the beach. So you, you just don't know, you know, where it's going to be, but yeah. you know it's there somewhere. Somebody told me once that they got into lots of trouble for removing a piece of wood from, I'm not sure if it was on a beach or where it was, because there was a whole, like, an ecosystem underneath it. That's right. When you yeah. pick up your your pieces, I mean, say they've been there for some time, imagine there's a bit of an ecosystem. Do, do you find a lot of creatures attached to the...? Um, no, that's why we only pick from the high tide mark. We oh, don't. There's a lot of driftwood further up towards the bush. And we don't, we don't touch any of that. We only touch the wood on the high tide mark. We know no ecosystems have, you know, formed on the. So it's all sort of clean and above board. Roger, mm. this is a kind of a strange question. You know, we're talking about something as sort of um, as lyrical as a Christmas tree made out of reclaimed wood. Can you order them online? <laughs> and if yes. so, how much are they, roughly? Yeah, yes, you can. Um, I've got to remember my prices. Um, the 1.5 meter ones are 750 rand, and the um, the the one meter are 500 rand, and the 500 are 250 rand. Um, I can't remember how. I think the. Well, don't worry. That that'll do. That's a guide. One thousand five hundred for the two meter. That's a sort of a guideline. I imagine each yeah. and every one would take a take a different sort of amount of time to do. But I believe you yourself are a bit of an old salt. Do you come from um, a boaty family? Yes. Well, um, my, my as you you know had trouble with my surname. My surname is Trebilcock. Oh, Trebilcock. Um, sorry. Yeah, and my family are Cornish. I come from Cornwall in England. And they traced my family back um, hundreds of years, and my family were all um, beachcombers and smugglers and wreckers and um, to do with the sea, making money from the beach and the sea. So it's in my in my blood. Wow, pieces of eight, eh? Do you wreckers? Yeah. Uh, do, do you get do you get many um, wrecked ships, little boats? Well, when we had that storm years ago, about um, between 80 and 100 boats got washed out um, of the Kielbums River and deposited about a kilometre out to sea, and then it all got buried by the sand. 
Also, there were um, houses got flooded through because a wave about eight to ten feet came down the river and just flooded the whole area. So there's all that wood buried underneath the sand about a kilometre out to sea. And when we get um, a certain wind and swell, it will take the top few feet of the sand off, and with that, the drift would all come in. So it, you get all kinds of things yeah. coming in. <laughs> wow, it sounds like a book in that. So buried yeah. treasure come floating your way. Gosh, yeah. Roger, thank you very much. Very best of luck. So if I give out your website, people can mm -hmm. order, order your That's trees fine, online. Yeah. Excellent. That's right, yeah. All right, my dear. Well, very best of luck and enjoy your, you. enjoy your driftwood collecting. Lovely. Thank you ever so much. Pleasure. That was Roger Tribblecock, and uh, get it right this time, and he's an artist owner of a company called By the Sea, B-U-Y. So if you fancy having yourself a, a salty-smelling uh, Christmas tree that uh, is made out of bits of reclaimed wood, what a joy. Check the site, bythesea.co.za. B-U-Y, that is, by the C.co.za, and you'll find him on our Facebook page as well. Well, finally, our green goodie tonight is a, a man who certainly won't be celebrating Christmas because as a Muslim, um, he also has some very, very creative, environmentally sustainable ideas. And uh, what we're going to talk about tonight is, is his idea of uh, a smarter faith centres. And he's Yusuf Mala, Mali, and he's a presenter on Radio 786, but we're very lucky to have him on SFM right now. Hi, Yusuf. Hi, good evening to you. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. We're intrigued by the idea of a smarter faith centre. I know that you have many ideas on um, on inventions that save and that are sustainable, but in particular, smart fa smarter faith centres. What do you have in mind? Um, you see, uh, in 2010, I had this. Uh, I designed a new smart and greener mosque because, being a Muslim, uh, my greatest concern was how can we get our mosque uh, off from the grid, and not just off, off from the grid, just electricity, but also um, looking at water-wise because we use a lot of water for ablution. So um, for, for a couple of years, I've been sitting on it, designing and thinking what needs to be done. And uh, in 2010, I took the design to, uh, to a various mosques and asked them, is it possible you can uh, actually build one of these? They were very taken aback because uh, it was something that uh, nobody ever thought of and it wasn't inside um, conventional uh, systems. So it was a very uh, difficult for me to uh, um, get people to understand that you can go green in more than one way, mm. uh, uh, even more than just uh, solar panels and wind turbines. Because uh, as an inventor, I've designed and built a, 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 a better method of generating clean energy. So something brand new, something South African and proudly South African. And uh, But unfortunately, not, not a lot of uh, um, interest was in that way until they heard my uh, water system, and that had been implemented in some mosques. But now the thing is, I haven't uh, just uh, looked at mosques. I've looked at faith centers and social centers are uh, inclusive because you have the problem of budgetary constraints. Uh, people are, you're looking at high unemployment, you're looking at people without uh, uh, a future. And uh, with our social centers, which is our mosque, is our, uh, our faith centers, that's the area where we can network. And having that all from the grid and having that sustainable, it will create so much opportunity. And that is what I thought, uh, the, that's why I focused on that. 
Yes, I can see you're looking at the broader picture and I'm just thinking about going green and actually I'm sitting here going terribly red because you're a presenter on Voice of the Cape, not Radio 786, so I'm no terribly problem. sorry. You're no so problem, I don't mind. No, we've got to get these things right. So just explain, I mean, go back to the mosque, um, the, the, making a greener mosque. You talk about a lot of water being used for ablution. Just explain how much water gets used and how you are redirecting it. Um, what I've designed was uh, a method. You see, the um, an ablution area. When we take up, uh, we call it abdus and wudu. When that area, a lot of this water is quite clean. But now that water is never captured because we only clean our uh, clean our bodies with it, so that we can uh, be standing in front of our maker, clean and feel clean when we do that. So that we know that when we are in communication with God, we feel uh, we are worthy of His, uh, um, uh, how I say, the communication. Mm. So now many of that water is just lost in uh, in the system. So what I designed was a method of capturing that water and storing it and utilizing that water in toilets. So using it in the toilet, we are area that uses the most water in any uh, uh, center. It uses extremely amount, uh, extreme amount of water. For example, for each flush, you're looking between 10 to 15 liters of water. Yeah. Some people also design other methods of using only 5 liters of water. But if you're looking at 10 people using that 50 liters of water now, and fake centers, you're looking at 100 to 150 uh, people utilizing that areas. So you're looking at a large, I mean, uh, uh, extremely large volume of water that's being wasted. So therefore I've designed it and a mosque actually embraced it this year, last year, uh, after three years trying to get the, uh, people to understand what my system is all about. Finally, an uh, 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 organization which is called ISNET and they've utilized it and uh, they've had some remarkable results and now they're going to be rolling it out in a lot of other uh, um, mosques also, which is, uh, you're looking at the one mosque, it's a very small mosque, They've actually captured in one prayer, which is the main prayer, which is Friday prayer, 500 liters of water that was captured in one, uh, that is only on a Friday. There's not even rest through the week, but because Friday is the busiest day, which is Friday prayer, yeah. that's, uh, that uh, water has been captured and uh, calculated 500 liters of water. That's 2,000 liters of water for the month. But they use that, use that water in the farming method uh, that I've also proposed, but they've utilized in a different method. But it, it already provided so much of sustenance. They've also used excess of that water also to uh, clean vehicles. So they're using it to, uh, um, to generate further income for the mosque. So it's not only just uh, one thing that uh, it, it's the prob it was solving a problem on, but a diverse level. So now more people came uh, who wanted to be interested and say, look here, this is actually an awesome initiative. But now we would like to, now how can we implement it in the toilet? And therefore I'm busy uh, showing them my design on how to do it. And because you can't use straight gray water in toilets because you get that awful smell. So therefore I've designed it uh, in a different method to get the water as clean as possible. So when you utilize it in the toilet, you don't get it foul in uh, uh, that awful stench. Hmm. I suppose it requires sort of retrofitting really, doesn't it? I'm not sure what, you, when you say you've designed this system, is it a series of pipes? Is it, is it a very costly business to create something, this sort of um, harvesting system? Um, it is, uh, how can I say, uh, exp not expensive, but there is an expense to it because it is a, a different method. You have to use, you to, you, uh, you to, I mean, you need to utilize various kind of generators uh, in order to pump it. You also need a various, um, uh, how can I say, 
uh, other innovations that is necessary, which there isn't currently on the on the market. Therefore, they needed to understand what is all what I'm uh, talking about. So I designed it for them so that they can understand. Because for me, I look at everything as design. Because everything in the world cannot be done without a mindset of thinking how can it be be done, and that is design. And therefore, um, I've been doing this now for the past 20, 25 years, um, and really enjoying designing and innovating and uh, building things that uh, wasn't conceivable or said impossible, and that is all to do with design. So when I designed the system, they now they understand exactly what I was talking about, how the pipes must uh, fit in, how each and every component needs to be uh, uh, secured in order to get that uh, filtration system done as uh, uh, um, to the, the degree that uh, I'm actually letting them know it can work at. Yeah. It's also a matter of mind shifting, really, too, isn't it? It's waking people yeah. up to the idea that, you know, when you say 2,000 litres of water every every month, that suddenly seems like it's a deluge, it's a tsunami. But have you, uh, have you patented this idea yourself? I provisionally patented in my design for a, uh, for a home. I, I designed a smart renewable home that is the RDP, I'm sorry, RDP home running uh, completely off the grid using all my latest technology that I've designed for innovations that um, that hasn't been uh, thought of yet. Um, so it's, uh, um, and for that I've got a design award um, from ECBS, uh, ECBS clinic, design clinic in Pretoria. So I'm very excited for that. And, but uh, the, uh, we're going to see some major things next year uh, with some of my designs, hopefully. So when you talk about the Smarter Faith Centre, is there one model Smart Faith Centre using your method? Um, there is only the one that is used, utilizing the water uh, water system, and that is in the Mitchell's Plain area in uh, on the Cape Flats. And there's three of them, uh, three new ones that will be going online that will be in uh, uh, by the earliest, will be February next year. But when I'm talking about my comprehensive uh, smart face center is where uh, I've designed a, uh, an, uh, I call it the fuelless generator, generating more energy than our solar or, an, um, uh, or any other renewable because it's a system where I multiply energy, which will, if, you, if you tell any scientist or anybody you can multiply energy, they said it's impossible. Well, I have uh, did it in 20, uh, 2005 and I've, um, busy, I'm still busy with it and perfecting it, um, uh, which is now 2014, and I took part in the ESA Innovation Summit in 2013, and which baffled a lot of professors when they see it in operation and it was working well. Yusuf, if anybody would like to contact you and find out a little bit more about you know any of the innovations that you come with, have you got a, an uh, email or website? What's the best way? Yes, yes, they can give me an email. There's no problem. I'm always available and always uh, talking and about... Your, what's your email address? Uh, it will be uh, Yusuf Mali at uh, uh, yahoo.com. I'm going to spell that. Wonderful. Y-U-S-U-F M-A Got it. Yusuf Mali at yahoo.com. Thanks very much. You take care. Keep up the good work. Absolute pleasure. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Yusuf Mali, well, if you would like to find out a little bit more about the work that he's doing with Smarter Faith Centres and saving a huge amount of water, pop him a mail. It's Yusuf Mali at yahoo.com. Yusuf Mali at yahoo.com. Yusuf is also a presenter of Voice of the Cape, so there you go. Well, that's it for the Enviro Show today. Thanks very much for staying with us. And don't forget, if anything you want to know, we'll have a squiz at our Facebook page, which is the Enviro Show on SAFM. I'm Nancy Richards, and uh, helping me along with the, the last 
Oh, it's been Kim Winter and Rob Parkin. I'll be back again on Sunday with SAFM Literature. But right now, it's just after 10 o'clock, which means it's time for Stephen Coco. Hi, Stephen.